the landlords of um, apartment complexes are often pretty selective about who they're going to let come live in their units. And so if you're going to apply, you have to go through this whole application, a background check, financial check. And they want to be careful with that because they want, because they know who they let into their apartment com units is going to affect the environment to the entire complex. You know, if you have a bunch of people who like don't really care or aren't able to pay, it's like they kind of don't really uh, respect things or take care of things. Like your apartment complex is going to go downhill pretty quickly. And so they know um, whoever they let in is going to influence the condition of the apartment um, when that person moves out. And so they are uh, selective about who they let in. And if you owned a house and you're renting it out to people, you'd do the same thing. You'd be like, okay, I want to be selective of who comes in to rent this house that I own because you want to make sure they're going to pay their rent. You want to make sure that they're going to um, not trash the place. You want to make sure that you're not going to be getting complaints from the neighbors about your tenant all the time and having the police call you and say, hey, your tenant is doing this. And you don't want to have any of that. In the same way, uh, we're often selective about the people we let into our life. And so imagine your life is kind of like this house and you have this choice about who you let in, um, and there's lots of people you can let in, and you have these choices about who you can let in, and those people that you let in are gonna influence the condition of your life. They're gonna influence your tastes and your hobbies and how you spend your money, how you talk, and, and what you look like. And who you let into your life is gonna have an influence on the quality of your life. And today as we continue our series in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it's, it's a book about beginnings, and we've been learning how God created the world, created to be a home. That was the beginning of our home with God. And then he created us to, to be in it with him. But then last week we also saw the beginning of how humanity's home with God is the first broken home in human history. But Genesis is all about how God is enacting this plan to lead us home. That's why we're calling it Beginning the Journey Home. And this, our declarations remind us like that garden at the beginning, um, that was home. That was what home was supposed to be like. God and humanity living God's presence following God and being with him. And that's what it's supposed to be. Well, chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, we it was introduced with this title. These are the generations of the heavens and earth. And then chapters 2, 3, and 4 are this block that's telling us this is the story of heaven and earth. This is what is kind of happened with everything. This is how everything was created, Genesis 2. It's every, that's how everything's supposed to be. Genesis 3 is how everything is not. How, how did everything get the way it's not supposed why is everything the way it's not? I can't, I can't figure out how to say that. Why isn't anything else supposed to be there? That's Genesis 3. And then Genesis 4 is like, okay, Genesis 3 messed it up. Now how does this same trajectory continue into Adam and Eve's kids? And we're going to see that in Genesis 4, these Cain and Abel are going to have the same choice that their parents, Adam and Eve, had. But we're also going to see the tragic effects that Adam and Eve's choice have. Um, on Cain and Abel's life. And the, the choice they have is, are we going to trust God or not? And the main character in the story, Cain, is presented with this choice. Is he going to welcome God into his life or welcome sin into his life? If Cain's life is a house, he is both God and sin knocking at the door. And he has to choose which one am I going to welcome in to my life. And the one he welcomes in is going to have a great influence on the quality of his life and what's going to happen to him. And even though God warns him what will happen if he lets sin in, he chooses to do it anyway. He chooses the way of the serpent instead of the way of God. And the big question this passage answers is, what happens when you shut the door on God and open it to sin? What happens when you shut the door on God and open it to sin? What happens when you shut the door on God and open it to sin? 
this passage it stands as a warning for all of us. It should kind of scare us a little bit when we look at what happens in Cain's life. And it's a warning to us about the influence of sin. How does sin influence us when we welcome it into our lives? And sin, it's, kind of, it's one of those words we learn in church, but we sin every time we refuse to trust God and follow his ways. Whenever we go the opposite way that God wants us to, that is sin. And so let's look at what sin um, does to Cain's life when he refuses to trust God. And just remember, Adam and Eve, um, they've just been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and God created this wonderful world for them to dwell in. He said, there's one rule. Do not define good and evil for yourselves. Trust my definition of what is good and evil. That, you know, when you trust someone's definition of what's right and wrong, that means, oh, I do what they say is right, and I don't do what they say is wrong. And God says, trust me on this. Trust me. I know what's right and wrong. Trust my definition of good and evil. Don't flip those and do the opposite of what I say and avoid doing um, what I tell you to do. And through deception, the serpent gets them to doubt God and then to desire what God said is off limits. And then it has disastrous consequences. They are ashamed. They hide from each other. They hide from God. They take no responsibility. Instead, they play the blame game. They're like, oh, it was, it was the woman that you gave me. And oh, it was the serpent. It's no one's fault. Uh, except It's everyone's fault except the people who actually did it. And then God warns them, if they didn't trust him, that his definition of good and evil, right and wrong, that they were going to die. And though they don't physically die, death for them is being exiled from God's presence and from the tree of life. And now it's verse 1, chapter 4. That's what just happened. It's just right on the edge of that, all of a sudden we get chapter 4. And we're told that Adam knew his wife Eve. This is the Bible's uh, discreet way of saying um, they had sex. And, but it also is telling us that uh, sex is it's not only this physical act, it's a deeply personal knowing act. He knew his wife. And then Eve became pregnant, and she named her son Cain, and then she became pregnant with another boy named Abel. And then we're told that Abel becomes a keeper of the sheep, a shepherd, and that Cain becomes a worker of the ground, a farmer. And then at some point in time, like obviously they grow up and they become a shepherd and a farmer, and um, at some point in time they bring a sacrifice to God, and Cain brings some of the fruit of the ground, some of his produce that he's grown, and Abel brings uh, some a piece of uh, livestock uh, from his herd. And they're both trying to uh, express thanks and trust to God. And so the opening scene of this story is one of worship. They're both trying to express their thanks and their trust in God. And in that time, sacrificing animals was how you did that. And both Cain and Abel, they do animals or produce, fruit of the ground. That's a totally legitimate sacrifice, too. Um, so both of them do this act of work, worship. Cain, produce, Abel, sheep from the work of his of their hands. But God doesn't respond to the sacrifices in the same way. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that God takes notice of, sac of, Cain, or of Abel's, but not of Cain's. Both animals and produce were acceptable sacrifices, so the issue isn't what they sacrificed. Those, there's nothing wrong. You could do either one of those. So from the outside, it's hard to tell the difference between the two, but, but both of them are offering this legitimate sacrifice. But if God takes notice of one and not the other, we should infer there, there must be something on the inside um, that's going on here. On the outside, it's like, oh, legitimate sacrifices, that's fine to do that. But there must be something going on on the inside for why God takes notice of one and not the other. Um, and we learn um, in the New Testament, Hebrews 4, uh, or Hebrews 11, that um, Cain, Abel's sacrifice was more acceptable than Cain's because he did it by faith. He did it as an expression of trust and devotion and love to God. His heart was in the right place. So there's a heart issue going on here. It's like, oh, 
if they're both offering legitimate sacrifices and one is taken notice of and one isn't, there's an issue of the heart going on. We're given a clue of this here in our passage because Abel offers the firstborn and the fat portions as his sacrifice, meaning he offers God the best, which expresses um, his devotion to God, his trust, and his love for him. And then we're told that Cain simply offers an offering of the fruit of the ground, not the first fruits, not the best fruits, just some fruit. And what I want to show Katie uh, that I believe she's special and that I love her, and I'll sometimes buy her flowers, and I know her favorite flowers are pink, light pink roses. But if I wanted to be on the cheap side, like, you know what, I don't really want to get roses. I'm going to get something a little cheaper. Maybe carnations. I'm going to save a little money and get her carnations instead. But is, if I do that, if I go the cheaper route, is that a really good expression of how much I love her and how special I think she is? Like, I don't even think she's special enough to get, you know, the $5 more for the exact flowers that she likes. I'd rather save a couple bucks and give her carnations instead. But both of them are looked like an expression of love for her, but my heart would be different in both cases. In the one case, I'm saying, like, you know what? You're totally worth it. I'm going to spend it on the light pink roses. In the other case, it's like, you know, I want to save a couple bucks, and so I kind of want you to feel a little special, but I don't want to go all the way. And that's what's going on here. Abel offered a sacrifice that was costly. He gave the best. It showed his love for God because it cost him something. And Cain offered a sacrifice, but his heart wasn't in the right place. And our acts of worship are supposed to be an outward expression of an inner reality, but the outward expression without the inner reality um, to God, that's meaningless. If it's not an actual expression of love, if it's just the outward expression, um, then it's meaningless to God. And Cain shows us that you can go through religious rituals, going to church services, reading your Bible, praying for dinner, before bed, and you can do all those things and yet have a heart that's far from God. You can schedule God things into your life and yet not welcome God into your life. And God knew the difference between Cain and Abel's acts. One expressed devotion to him, and the other expressed something else. We aren't told exactly what. And so we may wonder, well, why did Cain even offer a sacrifice in the first place? If, he's not, if it's not an expression of devotion to God, why is he doing this sacrifice? And the only answer we can give, get is that it was for the wrong reasons. We're not told why. That kind of allows each of us to go into the story of like, what would be wrong reasons that I would go through the motions and do acts of worship to God? What would, why, how would I do that from a wrong heart uh, motivation? Maybe he thought, well, I, I, I'm supposed to do this. I, God wants me to do this, so I'm just going to do it. I'm supposed to do it. And it's kind of like if you had a, if you told your kid um, to. Uh, maybe clean the house or something, there's two different ways to do it. You know, one would be like, yes, you know, mom or dad asked me to do this. I'm excited to do this. I want to please them. Right heart motivation. The other would be like, oh, gosh, I'm so mad. I have to clean this house. And I didn't. So they might get it done, but totally wrong, different heart motivation as they do it. And God wants the other one. He wants us to be, I want to please you, God. I want to do this because I love you. I want to do this as an expression of how much you mean to me. Or maybe he was trying to offer something to God to get something in return. Um, I'm going to do this, and then I hope God does that. I'm going to kind of do something for him. You know, this is what he wants done, and maybe he'll do the thing that I want to do. And so we don't know, uh, but when we do acts of worship for the wrong we reasons, we know that God is not pleased with them. He wants to do us to do it from a heart of love for him. He doesn't want us to do things um, because we know we're supposed to do it or because we're trying to get something to manipulate him to give us something. Um, and we don't have to give... We see this, we don't have to give God someone else's best, because Cain didn't have to go get an animal 
and sacrifice that. Um, he just had to give God his best. And so you don't have to like compare yourself to other people and like, this is what I have to offer you, God. Like, I have this money or I have um, this life or I have this amount of resources or I have this amount of gifts and talents. We just offer what we have to God, our best to God, not somebody else's best to God. But even though God doesn't take notice of Cain's sacrifice, he still takes notice of Cain. Even though Cain's sacrifice was empty of love for God, God's not empty of love for Cain. Because when God sees, uh, when, when, when Cain uh, sees that God didn't take notice of this, the end of verse 5 says that Cain is angry and his face fell. You can tell when someone is upset because you know, their kind of face is a little down, they're, they're not looking at people, and they're just kind of hunched over maybe in their seat or as they're walking or whatever. And God sees this in Cain, and God didn't respond to Cain's half-hearted sacrifice with pleasure and acceptance um, that Cain wanted them to. Like, I want you to just kind of do this half-hearted thing, and I want you to be pleased with it. And so now he's angry. God, why didn't you respond, you know, how I wanted you to, to my half-hearted sacrifice? And sometimes we can act like Cain, too. We've been too busy to give God any attention for days or weeks or months, and then we get into a stressful situation, throw up a quick half-hearted prayer for God's help, and then we get mad when He doesn't fix everything in our life. Or uh, we and we might say, "Well, what good is God? I was, I'm in this tough situation, and I threw up this prayer, and um, this is what I really needed you, and He didn't come through for me." Or we give God the bare minimum requirement of time that uh, we think He wants from us, and we wonder why He seems distant. And so we can be half-hearted and wonder, well, God, why aren't you responding the way I want you to? And then we get mad that he's not doing what we want. And the good news is that God is gracious, and so he gives us what he, we don't deserve, and he gives Cain what he doesn't deserve. Even though Cain doesn't want to give God his best, God wants what's best for Cain. And so he tries to guide Cain back. So in verse 6 he says this, and this is kind of like a key, this is, is a key verse for this passage. Verse 6 says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God gives Cain two options. This is a fork in the road moment for Cain. And option one is that Cain can do well, or another way of saying it is he can do good. And remember, who's the one who defines good and evil? God is. And so option one is for Cain to do what God says is good. Well, option one is for Cain to follow God's guidance, to trust him, to love him. And God asks him, if you follow my ways, will you not be accepted? And the actual word is, will you not be lifted? Cain's face has fallen because God wasn't impressed with his half-hearted religious ritual. And God says, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Do good and it will be lifted up. You're upset that I didn't take notice of your sacrifice, but if you want to be accepted by me, and you need to really devote yourself to me and just not, don't just put on a religious show. So that's option one. God says, follow my good ways and you'll be lifted up. Option two is that Cain can not do good. He can choose to devote himself, uh, to not devote himself to God. But if he chooses that option, God warns that sin is crouching at his door. Its desire is for him. He says, but you must rule over it. And sin is pictured like this wild animal ready to pounce on Cain and destroy him. Sin desires to make Cain its slave, but he must not let it. He must rule over it. So Cain has these two, you know, figuratively people knocking on the door of his life. One person knocking is God, and if Cain will welcome God into his life, he'll be welcoming, God, welcoming God's good guidance into his life, following God's ways, and he's going to be accepted. He's going to be in, 
in, in a right relationship with God. But sin is also knocking, crouching outside his door like a wild beast ready to devour him and destroy him. And if Cain does not want to follow God in his ways, he's going to be welcoming sin into his life. And though the serpent in the last chapter was a visible character, and though he isn't a visible character here, he's still tempting people to shut the door on God and open it to sin. And the big question this passage answers is, what happens when you shut the door on God and open it to sin? So let's see what happens to Cain. First, sin takes over. When you shut the door on God and open it to sin, sin takes over. It doesn't come in for a tea party and leave. It just takes over. Verse 8 says this. <coughs> Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Notice that because there is a problem with Cain's vertical relationship, his relationship with God, it creates a problem in his horizontal relationships with other people. And verses 1 through 7 show us that Cain's relationship with God isn't right. He doesn't trust God. He's holding out on God. He wants to do the bare minimum for God. And Cain just wants to go through the motions and for God to be happy with it. But God doesn't accept that. And so Cain thinks, well, God's against me. What the heck? Why don't you accept my sacrifice? Like, you know, I'm just going to be done with this then, I guess. But then God gives him this choice. Well, welcome me into your life. Or you can welcome sin into your life. And God shows Cain, I'm not against you. He's trying to guide him. He's trying to get him out of this place that he's in. But Cain chooses sin anyway. With both knocking at his door, we may be like, well, well why does he shut the door on God and open it to sin? Well, because he believes the same lie that his parents believe, that God isn't that good and sin isn't that bad. You have both knocking at the door, and we may be like, oh, it's so obvious. Let God in the door. But he believes the same way. I don't think God's that good. And sin's not sounding too bad. And so he lets sin come in to the door. He believes that sin is better than God and that sin is more to offer him in, in his life. And so he lets sin into his life. And he believes God is against me. He didn't accept my sacrifice, my half-hearted sacrifice, so he's against me, so I'm just going to go this other way. And God's guidance in verse 7, he thinks, can't be trusted. You know, God says, if you do good, you'll be accepted. Why doesn't he do good? Because he doesn't trust what God said. If you believe God, then you would have done what God had said. And just look at the disastrous effects of believing that God is against him. But think about that. Do you ever believe God's against me? He doesn't really care about me that much. Or he's not really paying attention to me. He doesn't really care how I'm feeling or what I'm doing or what I'm going through. And like, oh, maybe he, maybe he actually uh, doesn't love me enough to forgive all my sins. And we try to work our way. Like, think about situations where you believe God's against me. And what does Cain do? It leads him to murdering his brother. And at the root of Cain's actions is the belief that God is against him. And that belief grows the fruit of murder in his life. Cain believes God is against him, and so Cain is against his brother. And if you think you disobey God or don't do what he says because you're just making his mistakes or that they're bad habits, you're mistaken. You, you keep sinning, and I keep sinning. We keep not doing what God says because of what we believe. And when it comes to our beliefs, our actions always speak louder than words. And so if you find yourself at odds with other people or if you have a hard time getting along with others or with coworkers, or if you fight with your parents, your kids, your siblings, your spouse, if you always find yourself against other people, it probably means that you believe that God is against you. That was the root of Cain's murdering his brothers. He believes God's against him, and the fruit it grows is that he is against his brother. 
And the truth is, we're, we may think, like, well, Cain murdered somebody. Um, I haven't murdered anybody. Like, I'm way better than Cain. But if you look at just the, it's not many steps for him to get to murder. We're all only, I'm not saying, like, we're all, like, ready to murder somebody. But it's just, like, a few steps away from murder when you, when you think about it. Like, he believes God's against him, and so he starts hating his brother, and he thinks like, his brother's, my brother's against me, God's against me, and I'm going to be against him, and I'm going to take him out before he takes me out. It's like not that many steps, and when we looked, read 1 John 3 um, earlier, it talks about don't be like Cain, who hated his brother. Instead, we're supposed to love other people, and so we can be like Cain, too, when we hate other people. And then he defines it later, he says, anybody who walks past somebody uh, and doesn't take care of them, they're being like Cain. Because we're saying, like, you know what, I don't really care that um, you have needs and they're not getting met and you need help. I just would rather you die and figure it out on your own. Like He says, don't be like Cain, who just doesn't care, who says, you know, am I my brother's keeper? He just lets um, people try to figure it out themselves. He doesn't um, love his brother. He hated his brother and killed him. So first, sin takes over. Second, responsibility moves out. When you shut the door on God and open it to sin, Responsibility moves out. Shut the door on God and open it to sin. Responsibility moves out. Verse 9 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? When Cain's parents disobeyed God, they hid, and when God questioned them, they blamed. And this pattern escalates with Cain. God questions him, and he lies. He knows exactly where his brother is. He's dead in the ground because he put him there. And then he denies all responsibility for his brother. Am I my brother's keeper? God, his creator, comes to him and asks him a question. He has the nerve to throw a question back at God, suggesting that God's question to him is inappropriate. Why are you, what are you doing asking me where my brother is? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, this leads us to the third thing that happens when you shut the door on God and open it to sin. It's this. God is unwelcome in your life. You shut the door on God and open it to sin. God is unwelcome in your life. Cain doesn't think God should be questioning him and holding him accountable. He just kind of wants God to buzz off. I'm not my brother's keeper. Like, you know, leave me alone. And if this is the case, then fourth, you're unwelcome in his presence. When you shut the door on God and open it to sin, you are unwelcome in his presence. God is unwelcome in your life. And if that's the case, you're unwelcome in his presence. Verse 10 says this. The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work, the ground shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. The ground was cursed because of Adam's sin, and he was sent out of God's presence in the Garden of Eden. Because of Cain's sin, the ground once again is cursed, and he's cast even further from God. The more we welcome sin into our life, the further we move away from God. Cain has already shut God out of his life, um, so it's not like this is really a change, like moving further away from God. It's like he's already shut him out of his life. He doesn't want him in his life. Um, and God makes sure that Cain knows the results of his actions, because if sin is at home in your life or at my life, or my life uh, we can't be at home with God. If you welcome sin into your life, you won't be welcome in God's presence. It's one or the other. You can either be at home with welcoming God in your life, being at home with God, or you can welcome sin into your life and not be at home with God. Fifth, selfishness moves in. When you shut the door on God and open it to sin, 
selfishness moves in. Responsibility moved out, and selfishness took its place. Verse 13 says this, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. God confronts Cain about the evil act he has done. But Cain expresses no remorse. He doesn't express sadness about what he's done to his brother. He doesn't say, you're right, God, this is, I've done something horrible. Please forgive me. I, you know, I don't deserve anything you give me, but I just ask for your forgiveness. What does he do? He only complains about the consequences for himself. Sin makes us focus only on us. We're upset that we got caught. Man, if I could have got away with it. You know, we're not upset about what we did, just upset that we got caught. And then sixth and finally, sin infects and intensifies. When you shut the door on God and open it to sin, sin infects and intensifies. Starting in verse 17 and ending in verse 24, we, we hear how sin affects Cain's family and intensifies as the years and the generations pass. And we end with a song by Cain's four greats, great, 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 great grandson, Lamech. And Lamech, he takes two wives, which is a violation of how God created marriage to work back in Genesis 2, between one man and one woman. And so he's already defining good and evil for himself. God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I want to make him a helper fit for him. And then he has a wife. Oh, and, and Lamech says, well, I might as well take two. So he's already he's breaking, defining good and evil for himself. And then verse 23, he says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech boasts about his murderous, vengeful lifestyle. Cain killed someone, and then he was afraid that someone would kill him, and he was sent out as a because he was sent out as a wanderer and a fugitive. Like he committed a crime, so he's sent out as a fugitive, and he killed somebody in his family, so he's not very welcome in his family anymore. But then God says, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance is going to be taken on that person sevenfold. God's saying uh, nobody's supposed to be killing people here and so if somebody kills Cain I'm going to bring justice to bear. But then Lamech takes that promise from God and turns it into a license to seek his own revenge with even greater severity. He says in verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Cain murders his brother and his cold-hearted response to it infects his family and it intensifies until it reaches a climax Lamech, who accumulates wives for himself and is proud of seeking revenge seven, seven, 77 times worse than what people do to him. Look, he says, somebody stroked me and wounded me, and I killed him. And so he just inflicts 77 <coughs> times worse damage. And so Cain, he welcomed sin into his life. In doing so, he allowed it to infect his whole family. And then it intensifies as it goes down generation to generation. But this passage, I mean, that's a lot of bad news. Look what sin does to us. We need to hear this. But there is good news because we learn two important truths about God. The first is that God's justice towards Cain is good news. God's justice toward Cain is good news. We tend to believe the lie. God is overly strict and severe and should kind of lighten up a bit. Um, Adam and Eve, you know, they ate the fruit. Get over it. You know, lighten up, God. Jeez, why'd you have to go way overboard? You know, can't we give Cain a break? Can we give Adam and Eve a break? 
God's justice is good news. And the, the fact that God doesn't let people off the hook when we break his commands is a good thing because we want a God who is consistent and fair. When people break the law in our world, we want police and judges to enforce the law. And if they don't, they're called corrupt cops, corrupt judges, because they're letting people off the hook or getting paid off or you know taking bribes or whatever. And that's corrupt. And we, and God isn't corrupt. You can count on him to always uphold justice and righteousness. You can count on him to always uphold the law and always to do what's fair. It's easy to believe that God judging people and punishing them is a contradiction to his love. But if God let evil go unpunished, that wouldn't be loving. And of course, we all want to be off, you know, let off the hook for what we've done. We'd like God to go easy on us. But we don't want others to get off the hook for the wrong they've done to us. We don't want them to go easy on those people who have hurt us. Like, how good would that feel? Like, oh, this person you know, was drunk and, and ran into my car and, you know, my spouse died or, you know, whatever it is. Like, the, the wrong people do to us, like, yeah, they should be held accountable, but, but for us, you know, it was just a mistake. Like, I had good intentions or, or whatever it is. We want God to be easy on us. But God's love is one that doesn't allow sin, and disobedience, and evil to win the day. God loves us too much to let us live in the darkness of sin without experiencing the consequences and he lets Cain and he lets Adam and Eve experience the consequences. Sin moves us away from God. We can't be in his presence. And he lets them experience those consequences. And we would never repent from sin if there are no consequences. We'd just be like, well, I just keep doing what's wrong, but there's no consequences. So why would I you know, not do what I want to do? I'm just going to do the things I want because God never does anything about it. But Cain's punishment is fitting. He becomes homeless. Verse 16 says, this it says then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden and he calls himself a wanderer and a fugitive he's separated from his family and just like Adam and Eve were sent east out of God's presence Cain also moves further east of Eden further from the presence of the Lord and you'll see this several times in Genesis and other books where people move east you go look at uh, Lot um, later in Genesis and he moves east, the land he picks us east, and it's always a foreboding sign when people are moving east because it's east of Eden, which was home in God's presence. And God gives Cain what he wants. Cain didn't want God in his life. He welcomed sin. He said, man, God, whatever you said, he welcomed sin into his life. And Cain is also exiled from his family, sent out as a wanderer and a fugitive because he killed his own brother. Cain's actions alienated him from God They've alienated him from his family. And perhaps you feel the same way. Perhaps you feel like, man, some of my actions, I just kind of feel my relationship with God is strained. My relationship with other people is strained, is strained because your own actions have made it feel like there's alienation and a barrier there. But there is good news. The first truth, truth we learn about God is that God's justice towards Cain is good news. The second truth we learn is that God's grace toward Cain is good news. God's grace toward Cain is good news. And it's remarkable that God continues to deal with Cain and talk to him. Cain, God comes to Cain and tries to ask him, where is your brother? You know, and trying to get him. Maybe he could confess and maybe there could be some forgiveness or something. And even when Cain shows total disregard for God and no remorse, God still puts a mark of protection on him. Nobody's going to kill you like you're afraid of happening. And then God allows Cain to have children, and he allows those children to have success. They have success in music, in metalworking, in raising livestock. They're kind of making these cultural and technological advancements 
and even though they're following in their father's footsteps, and that's all grace. Worldly success. We can see they're successful in the world. God's letting them um, be successful in using his good creation. But that isn't always a sign of God's pleasure with someone. Even though Abel was godly, his life was cut short. But Cain, he gets this generation of people that invent things. And God continues to let both good and bad people live in his creation. And he continues to provide for both purely from his grace, giving them and us what we don't deserve. In this passage, we also learn an important truth about us. And it's this. If we welcome God into our life, we can overcome sin. If we welcome God into our life, we can overcome sin. That's an important truth about us. If we welcome God into our life, we can overcome sin. Sin has deep roots in our world, in our lives. It's not like we have just a couple weeds in the garden. The whole thing is overrun. We're going to see that in the next several chapters of Genesis. But a glimmer of hope is given in verse 25. It says this, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And the glimpse of hope in the curses of chapter 3 was that Adam and Eve's offspring would one day be able to defeat the serpent. And Adam and Eve uh, had Cain and Abel, and Abel was godly. Maybe this is the one that will overcome the serpent, the one that won't give into this temptation that we gave into. And God accepted him. Perhaps he's going to be one to defeat the serpent. Then Cain killed him, and sin overtook Cain's family. So that line of Adam's family, like they've just gone down a hole. But here, Adam and Eve have another son named Seth, and his family begins calling upon the name of the Lord. And this means they welcome God into their life. They welcome his help. They welcome his instruction, his guidance, his discipline, his plans and agenda for them. And when the New Testament book of Luke traces Jesus' family history, he traces it back to Seth and then back to Adam. And Jesus, just like seems like Seth and his family, they're, they're like overcoming the temptation of the snake and they're going to be the one to crush his head. Um, Jesus is the ultimate one who overcomes the temptation of the snake in the wilderness, and the ultimate one who defeats the serpent. He trusts God, and he trusts his word. We may look at our life and these things, all these things we just went over, um, you can look at what are the signs that sin might be welcome in my life. And we can just go back over a couple of points. One is that it, um, you don't take responsibility when somebody points something out to you, like, hey, this really hurt. Um, or like, hey, you... You know, you shouldn't be late anymore. Or, hey, this something you said that would really um, didn't feel good, and it's your first reaction, justification and defense and blame. That probably means that sin is welcome in your life because you don't want to get it out. It's like you know, I sin, but there's kind of a reason for it, and so like, I'm not at fault. And another one is God is unwelcome. Sin, uh, you don't take responsibility, or God is unwelcome, um, shows that sin is welcome in your life. And if God's unwelcome in your life, it means that you're setting your own plans, you're setting your own agenda, uh, and God doesn't have a say. Like, you know, you might hear um, God's word on a Sunday or be reading in the Bible, and if you walk away doing nothing, like, it shows that God doesn't really have a say in your life. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, he said that stuff, but I'm just going to kind of go on doing what I wanted to do anyway. And lastly, um, you're selfish. Remember, selfishness, selfishness moved in to Cain's life. And this means you're focused on yourself. And when people uh, say, like, you, they hurt you, um, or you hurt them, or whatever it may be, you just have no remorse, you don't feel any sadness, so it's like, yeah, um, 
like you were hurting me so I can hurt you back or whatever it is. You have no remorse um, about it. Um, but we can be liberated. These are signs that sin is welcome in our life. But we can be liberated from the grip of sin and Satan if we too welcome God into our lives, just like this godly line um, from Seth. Sin's goal is to take us down, but God's goal is to lift us up. And it's nothing but a dire, downward spiral for Cain, for Cain and his family once he gives in to sin. When we invite God, welcome him into our lives, and he moves in, he comes in to do a cleanup job. Um, because Jesus... He never welcomed sin into his life. Um, and he always closed, he always welcomed God in, he always closed the door on sin. And yet, he died as someone who did welcome sin into his life. He did die as someone who gave into the serpent who defined good and evil for himself. But when God comes in, Jesus' death is applied to us, and we get cleaned of all that sin that we've welcomed into our life and that has destroyed us and ruined us and, and done all these things to us. When God moves in, when we welcome him, begins to restore us and restore all the damage that sin has caused in our lives. And sin's desire is to make us a slave. It doesn't just come in for a quick visit and leave your life um, to say, oh, you see you that was fun, I'm, I'll leave now. It takes over and it runs the show. And it doesn't only want you, it wants your kids and it wants their kids and it wants their kids. And the decisions you make today are decisions that will affect your great, great, great grandchildren. And so you can leave them a legacy of saying yes to God and no to sin. It doesn't mean, okay, I was always perfect and like, oh, dang it, I sinned one time and now you know, I've ruined the whole family history. But the, it doesn't say that Seth's family were perfect. It says they're calling upon the name of the Lord. And so what you're giving to our kids and people around us um, is what does a life of trust and dependence on God look like? What does it look like to welcome into our life? Like when I do sin, I welcome his forgiveness. I welcome his grace. I ask him for help to overcome it. Um, and then when we're trying to obey his commands, we're saying, God, I'm welcoming your guidance. I'm welcoming the power of the Holy Spirit for me to be able to do this. And if your kids are already older and grown, you can still start now. Show them what it's like for their mom or dad um, to start following God, to welcome into their lives. And show your grandkids. And a change in your family. Um, all of us will, will have families. Um, and it starts now with our siblings, with our parents, with our kids, with grandkids. And even if we don't have kids, we, everybody in our life, um, every single one of us, we can show them what does it look like for somebody to be welcoming God into their life. And that's how we can become a light for Christ. As we just think about next week, when we're going through chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis, there's a lot of darkness. And Adam and Eve just opened up the floodgates of sin and evil and wickedness into God's good world. And these nine chapters... 3 through 11, are just gonna sh they're going to show us how bad sin is. Remember that lie? God isn't that good, sin isn't that bad. 3 through 11 shows how bad sin really is. And we need to hear it because it's really easy to take sin lightly. It's too easy for us to think uh, disregarding God and disobeying His commandments, you know, it kind of has, it doesn't really have an effect on me, it doesn't have an effect on our world. We still believe the lie of the serpent that God isn't that good and sin isn't that bad. And these chapters show us otherwise, and they aim to convince us of the badness of sin, that even though the sky is dark, there are rays of hope, and we see the goodness and the grace of God shining in the dark to give us hope, just like we saw in this passage right at the end here. So let's pray. Father, we, we really need your help to believe what you say, that sin is destructive and devastating, and it will ruin us, it will ruin our families, um, we'll ruin our neighborhoods, 
it's ruined our world it's, and it is intensifies the longer we let it stay in us so Father would you give us strength to repent uh, to turn away from sin uh, to welcome you into our life instead of it to help us resist the temptation of the serpent um, to walk in your ways trusting what you say is good and trusting what you say is bad and not going down paths you tell us not to it's in your son's name we pray Amen.